follow in the footsteps of the Cartier Panther with the Pontaire de Cartier jewelry collection. A creative signature of the Maison, the Cartier Panther has been reinvented time and time again since her first sighting in 1914. Magnetic, feline, and wild, she is a force to be reckoned with, evolving with each design. Unbox the newest pieces in the Pontaire de Cartier collection at Cartier.com. the way in which you can truly center and understand your adoration for something and, and as well your commitment to it, commitment to changing it, commitment to expanding it, commitment to wrestling with it for the rest of your life is actually sometimes by leaving. Welcome to Shattering the Glass Ceiling, a podcast from the team at The Art Angle, where we speak to boundary-breaking women in the art world and beyond about how art has shaped their lives and careers. I'm Naomi Ray, the London editor of Artnet News, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Legacy Russell, artist, associate curator of exhibitions at Harlem Studio Museum, and award-winning author of Glitch Feminism, a manifesto on cyberfeminism that explores how digital tools have created space to escape the limitations society places on our bodies. She is currently working on her second book, Black Meme, which will be published by Verso Books. Legacy, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Where are you calling from right now? Well, currently I'm calling you from Bed-Stuy. Do or die. <laughs> <laughs> so you are a born and raised New Yorker, is that right? Yes, born and raised East Villageite. Yes, East Village. So can you set the scene for us a little bit and tell us about when and why you first fell in love with art? I grew up in the East Village, born and raised on St. Mark's Place. I have a long and gorgeous history with loving art. My father was a photographer who was born and raised from Harlem. My mom was from Hawaii, and they met in the 70s in the East Village. And being both creative people, they, you know, kind of created an environment where they were deeply interconnected with artists and artwork and creative communities. So I grew up going to lots of different types of shows and art spaces like Dance Space and Theater for the New City and PS122 and Joe's Pub and Shakespeare in the Park and the Howl Festival and Wigstock. All of these different amazing spaces were places that I began to get a better sense of like what art was. And, you know, a lot of my examples, because I grew up in the East Village and Lower East Side, were examples of how art lived in the world, right? So like, you know, outside of institutionalized spaces and then the ways in which certain types of performativity, you know, as they began within different creative sites could then travel into institutional sites in ways that were new and exciting. I worked as a teenager at B-Bar and Grill. I was a hostess at the Beige Party, which is a legendary gay dance party that would happen um, on Tuesday nights on the Bowery. And it was a really formative period because I got a chance to meet like really amazing performers and art writers and people just doing really exciting things and got a chance to really like open my eyes to what a downtown New York nightlife and club scene and performance scene really looked like. And it was in those spaces, too, that I really began to kind of get a sense of what I wanted in terms of, you know, the pursuit of my own career and practice. And I was definitely like a nerdy theater kid and a poetry kid. And all of those things kind of pushed me further in understanding the intersections between art and life and performance and as well through a feminist lens. So the East Village and my experience of being, you know, a young person in downtown New York in a very specific period of time, especially as like nightlife and queer space and Black 
space was changing and transforming really pushed me to think deeply about the ways in which I wanted to enter into artwork. And how did you make that leap? What was the first career step that you took? I did some like smattering of different internships and things when I was quite young. I will say I made a kind of rule for myself to not work for free, um, which is a very challenging thing in the art world. And so, you know, I did not come from money and, I, you know, had some great mentors and people who gave me advice very early on to really hold that line and to establish value for my work. And so what that meant was that I did work outside of the art world, but then as well had that drive the ways in which I was thinking about my creative practice. So like speaking of this work in terms of working in nightlife, it was something that was kind of an ongoing part of my presence in the world and the ways in which I was meeting artists and creative people, performers in lots of different places and spaces. And that was something I think was like really formative in terms of like those first steps, because of course they stand outside of institutions, right? And But of course allowed me to get a sense of how those things can come into contact with institutional sites and be historicized. And as well, the ways where, of course, as a sort of deep and motivating force with my work and my writing and research, those things need to be held and cared for and how they're written about, questions of participation and power, you know, when we think about what it means to write about artists and make sure that we are honoring their visions and their contributions. And so those were kind of first formative steps. And then beyond that, when I was in college, between my junior and senior year, I got a fellowship at the Met. And so that brought me back to New York. And I was in fellowship working closely with Lisa Messenger at the time, who was a curator of the 19th century modern contemporary, and as well, Donna William Sutton, who was working with audience development Having a fellowship that stood at the intersection of those two things was really foundational because it showed me two different sides of what it means to exist in an institutional space. On the one hand, you know, shaping this question of audience and thinking about how to engage different types of participation and presence inside of spaces that, you know, are assumed to be democratic and open to everyone. But of course, as we very well know, that is not always the case. So, you know, what does that work look like? And, you know, what does it mean to make sure that museums truly can be accessed by everyone? And then on the other side, working with Lisa, at the time I was working in the archives and thinking deeply about the ways in which the material of an artist's life could be cared for and what that can be and the role institutions and museums play in making sure that that can be possible. So those were kind of my first steps inside of an institutional space. And from that point forward, very much so was someone who spent time deeply enamored with and also wrestling with and at points quite frustrated with museum spaces. So I went on to work at the Whitney and the Brooklyn Museum. It has been a period of time of definitely asking big questions about museum space. And so, you know, it's been wonderful now over a decade of time of doing this work to be inside of another institution at the City Museum in Harlem and continuing to kind of push some of those curiosities and questions forward about what the future of museum work can be. And today you have a breadth of experience behind you, curating exhibitions and projects at a range of different institutions, from, as you mentioned, the Met, the Whitney, to the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London, and of course, the Studio Museum, where you are now. As a writer, you have also contributed to a whole gamut of different kinds of publications. Through all of that, what have you learned about what makes a nurturing environment for creative thinking? It's a complicated question of only because the questions of care and I think gratitude as well are ones that often operate in sort of great deficit. 
inside of institutional spaces. And so really, when we talk about nurturing environments, it's actually a key spoke in the wheel of this idea of what it is to decolonize institutional space, that actually the reassessment of systems of care is a core component of what that can be. When I think about what it means to be nurtured inside of institutional spaces, people that I have looked up to and loved dearly have set high bars for what that can be and what those possibilities are. It's really allowing the artist to shape the vision and participate on an equal playing field with the curators, with the public programmers, with the educators. Like, what does that deep tissue interstitial work really look like and how can that help to shape a vision for a project or an exhibition or performance. And so for me, those questions have to be built into every part of a project. The ways in which you express certain value sets in the act of budgeting, it's how you build your team. It's the questions that you're asking of the artists about what they need, how they may see or define acts of care and what it is to be nurtured and held in a process of participation and collaboration that actually may be different in its definition than one that you may assume. So every situation is different. This work and being a curator is very much so one that is driven by a need for care being at the forefront. And it comes with a kind of great joy and responsibility in that way, right? Making sure that that can be possible. And can you tell us about a mentor that you've had in your career who has kind of shaped or changed the way that you think I feel lucky because I can say that there are many folks who have been quite incredible as mentors. One person who comes to mind is Zyveria Simmons. This is somebody who is an artist who I met when I was working at the Whitney. And I was a little little baby entering into this artwork world. And I was lucky to collaborate on a program with her at that time. And as well with another mentor of mine, Alison Weisberg, who has since gone on to found Recess, which is an incredible art space based in Brooklyn. To the question of Siberia, I think it was a really special time meeting her and getting to work with her and Allison at the time that everyone was at the Whitney because Siberia's position on her work is one that is so deeply generous. And to see an artist think through the ways in which one can collaborate with such care and vision and as well to provide space and room for active feedback to be built into the relationship of doing that work is an extraordinary act of trust. And the ways in which I've seen her grow over time and to the way that she's pushed me to grow, asking you know me to kind of continue to challenge myself has been remarkable and um, deeply valuable. Siberia as an artist has been somebody who I feel like has been a real rock in many ways to me and set a very high bar and showing me the ways that we can do work with artists and allow them to shape better visions of what an institutional art world should look like. So digital tools and the internet have played an important part in your writing and your curatorial work. Can you tell us about how discovering the digital opened you up to different types of possibilities of who you could be in the physical world? I would describe myself as a kid as like a morbidly shy Black queer kid. I was somebody who envisioned life through the books that she read and was very much so kind of introverted in a lot of ways. And that was something that I was quite proud of, actually. I didn't see it as a fault, but I definitely spent a lot of time in my younger years deeply inside of myself and thinking through some of that interiority as, of course, it mapped to my creative self. And so being online was something that absolutely 
was a big part of what my individual expansion could even look like. It was a remarkable period of being able to explore cyberspace and exist within the digital and have that be a space where you can kind of flex and experiment and perform and have those things be aspects of how you were expanding yourself away from your screen. What was remarkable at the time was that, of course, you know, it wasn't like this entire generation of people were talking to each other about having that as a shared experience. But when we look back on it, there are so many people who have been deeply informed by their early experiences of being networked and existing in digital space. So the internet itself as a tool for experimentation and play, I think is something that has been a great drive and sort of a motivator for people who are doing this work and thinking of performance as practice and as well of digital and new media. And it has been really exciting to think through the ways where that has both changed and transformed people, but as well pushed us further to think about with great criticality what the future of digital space should look like and how those things actually need to constantly be redressed in order to remain critical and relevant. And in your book, Glitch Feminism, you make a point of expanding early iterations of cyber feminism to be more intersectional. And in your broader practice, you are making room for marginalized voices in conversations about digital art. Can you talk a little bit more about how you are looking to make a departure from established schools of critical thought in your work? Just to clarify, so the book actually is not really about digital art. What Glitch Feminism does and, and the artists that it focuses on are not necessarily digital artists, but rather artists whose work has been informed by being deeply networked and mediated by, distributed by cyberspace and questions of digital space, speaking to the ways that that can be made possible. And we can see that through the work of Boy Child, where this work is deeply informed by the history of the cybernetics alongside of the language of drag and where that intersects sex with a sort of diaspora of presence and presentation, or we look at the work of American artists and we see that in Americans' work, American is exploring different ways that SEO, search engine optimization, can operate quite literally by engaging an avatar as being their name. And having that be something that shifts our scope in terms of visibility and representation of what an American artist should look like and who that should be. So there are lots of different examples of the ways in which that is explored through glitch feminism. But this is thinking about this question of who belongs within a discourse that is cyber feminist and what that looks like through a lens that is uniquely Black and queer and pushes back at binary politics. So thinking through what the scope of it is and what the departures are, I think it is looking for a more inclusive definition and intersectional definition of what cyber feminist history has been and who has been made visible in those narratives. So really the departure is that. It's asking for there to be um, new pathways made possible. Even just recently, actually, someone sent me a screenshot of the Wikipedia page of cyber feminism and the part in it that, that says basically more or less that Black people are not included in cyber feminism. And I thought that was really remarkable because essentially within the language of that as a kind of wiki edit as an open source, that clearly this is something that public discourse has shaped in terms of the imagination of this question of belonging within cyber feminism, right? And of course, the intersections between cyber feminism and Afrofuturism are really important and necessary to identify and acknowledge. They do not necessarily exist in opposition to one another. And so for me, the text of Glitch Feminism seeks to address some of that and to bring into conversation artists who are doing brilliant work, have made incredible contributions to these different histories. And that really is the hope for the book and as well for its contribution to critical thought, as you said. In 
your professional life, you have often foregrounded artists who problematize the body. How does that theme come through in the art that you live with at home? Who are some of the artists that you surround yourself with? I love this question, but actually you're hitting on something that I typically do not talk about in public realm because of the fact that the work that I live with is work that is deeply intimate and personal to me. So it becomes something that is a conversation between me and the artist rather than me and the world. But I do love living with different artworks and as well in terms of the ways in which that conversation has gone, it's something that I'm always sort of slow with. I like to think deeply about work as I consider whether I should be living with it because it's a lifelong relationship and it's something that I take very seriously. What about artworks that you live with kind of in your public persona? Do you have any artworks saved as your screensaver on your phone, for example? I love that question, actually. So on my screen right now is actually a work by my father, who I said was a photographer. I have a a work of his that is an image that he took in Harlem in the 70s. And on my phone, for many years, actually, I had Mark Aguar's These Are the Axes, which is something that appears in Glitch Feminism an incredible testament to what it means to problematize the body and to challenge our understanding of what a body should be, how it should function, what it should look like. And so I think that that's a beautiful question because we do live with art in other ways and those things are made visible in other forms and formats. For me, having these different anchors were really important, largely because of the fact that they were constant reminders of the work that we need to do. And thinking about this kind of dichotomy between the public and the private, the professional and the personal, the art industry is really one that can be all-consuming. How do you create and maintain healthy boundaries? I love people. I love being around artists. And a version of my home is basically a home where constantly people are coming in and out. And whenever someone's in town, there's someone who's on my couch and coming to stay in a pandemic moment, it's been remarkably quiet. And that I think has been something that has been useful perhaps because it has given me some insight about the ways in which I can establish different types of boundaries. But I will say that like existing in this industry and doing the type of work that I do, which is deeply intimate work with artists, oftentimes is really blurry, right? We work so closely and for years often at a time with different folks. And so what that means is that we become part of each other's family networks in many ways. In a best case scenario, that those things, of course, work holistically and with boundaries and opportunities to assert and transform what that can look like. But I think, you know, in terms of just the work of it, like the nine to five and thinking of the sort of administrative part of what it is to exist in any role where we're thinking about responding to emails and having to review budgets and do certain types of calling and such on Zoom. Setting boundaries has become an exercise of just knowing that you can say no. That seems like something that's really simple and easy, but actually at points I've struggled with it. And so I've gotten to the place where turning off my phone saying no, declining things, and actually not sitting with it as being like a FOMO situation that I'm like missing out on something extremely, but rather that it's an act of care and a gift to myself, right? That maintaining some level of an interior space that is not always externalized is a big part of surviving this work. And is that something that you think about in terms of the other people you're working with as well, kind of making room for them to say no and to set their own boundaries as well? Oh my gosh, I'm great at telling other people to set their own boundaries. It's like, if they, <laughs> it's actually like, it's quite funny. I think I spend most of my time telling other people that they should set their boundaries, right? And so this is also where I do think as a curator, we find ourselves sometimes doing that care work, right? It's a deep and loving work for other people because we see them with such generosity, right? Sharing with 
their practice, sharing with one another in terms of their collaborations. And so encouraging people to take breaks is something that I do often. I lived for six years in the UK and it was a hilarious experience getting there because I remember that one of my professors at Goldsmiths told me to stop being such an American because essentially I was always the first one in class. I always had my hand up. You know, if I got an A, I was asking how I could get an A, an A plus. And I was always really reticent. Even when there was like a bank holiday weekend, I was constantly hitting the pavement. I was filled with activities, constantly wanting to do stuff. You know, I do think that a big part of that I had to recognize came from my having grown up in New York and this sort of drive of productivity, which is so deeply saturated with a kind of capitalist mindset is something that can be really problematic. And of course, is part of our understanding of what it is to be a professionalized self. So when we talk about what it means to set boundaries, when I came back to the United States and I began seeing, obviously, with a different perspective, like, well, actually, the ways in which we set certain patterns here in America at points is quite devastating, right? It's like we are in a kind of Fordist machinic production of labor that actually really shames people for taking time off and time away. And that actually does not always map with clarity and care to what it is to be a deeply whole and healthy creative person. That, for me, brought to new heights the urgency and necessity of not only establishing those boundaries for myself, but also encouraging other people to set better patterns. So, you know, in collaborating with my teammates and the incredible folks I get to work with every day, those things have become more and more part of our discussions. And centering those things, I do truly believe, has made us better at doing our curatorial work. And right now, as you work on your second book, Black Meme, can you tell us a little bit about what the kind of research process, the day-to-day is like for you? I've been very lucky with the Black Meme project because I was granted a Creative Capital Award at the end of 2020. And that has been a monumental help, probably at the scale of that, the first in my life of its kind where I've been able to say, okay, great, there's actually not only the infrastructure here in terms of like the various workshops and such that Creative Capital offers, but also as well the funding support to bring in additional help, right? Like over the course of working on English feminism, I worked with some incredible research assistants who also helped to move the project along. And I have now begun a similar process with some research assistants. And that's been um, really monumental and inspiring to work closely with sort of new team of people. In terms of the day-to-day, I think I spend a lot of time kind of pulling different resources. It's like a little bit like a magpie. I've spent a lot of time during English Feminism actually pulling resources that have now become really central for Black Meme. And I remember my editor told me at the time to not start my second book when I was working on my first book. Um, And so as an exercise during that time, I just created like a really insane Dropbox, which has become this like wild resource where, you know, so many different materials, things that I was seeing and thinking about have like now been centered and centralized into this Dropbox. And then beyond that have been pulling out different strands of it and then beginning to shape the outline and blueprint for what this text will be. And it's been really exciting. It also at points has been really devastating. I think the text itself is looking at the construct of the Black meme and the question of Black memetics, which is like the transmission of Blackness as a memetic material. 
And that looks at an arc from 1900 to present day. And the reason why, of course, that that is challenging is because it is not a book necessarily about trends within memes as they exist in the here and now, but rather the ways in which certain types of virality of Blackness has established complicated models of what visibility and representation and economy look like in the here and now. And so it has meant that I have had to do deep work on subjects at points that have been quite challenging to write about, but what it has done is allowed me to spend a lot of time with subjects that I care a lot about. And, you know, I do feel that this will be a really necessary contribution to a conversation about what it is to go viral. And my hope is that it can help us set some different benchmarks. And what are your rituals whenever you're working and you're sitting down to work? How do you tell yourself kind of this is the end of the day? Typically, I will close my computer and I'll put on some music. I like to start my day with some music too. So this morning it was Stevie Nicks, especially because I've been working remotely and there's less of a a shift in space from home to office and vice versa. I try to transform some of these transitional periods with different sort of markers. So music is one of them. And as well, trying to take moments where I can experience some joy and unplug and perhaps connect with a friend over this past summer. My stoop became a place where, you know, it was a lot of fun to sit there and to spend time with folks as people pass by who lived in the neighborhood. And I'm definitely someone who's a warm weather person. So the idea that it's lighter later means that, of course, I can take my dog out for a walk and really like look up and look around and definitely have a world beyond the, the sort of arc of my screen time, which I think is also really essential to complete the loop. And a lot of your work has been about kind of opening up spaces. Do you have any advice for somebody who's trying to get into the field? I'll start with the advice that was given to me is do not work for free. I think that that's important to kind of keep passing that along because the economy of one's labor is one that is really important to consider. And the ways in which we at points devalue ourselves by giving in to the anxiety of precarity sometimes can lead us to accepting less than we should for what we are due. So I always encourage people really to advocate for themselves and to establish what their bottom line is in terms of what their work is and how that has worth and value and should be recognized as such. And the AAM American Alliance Museums just released a really devastating survey that basically was talking about Black people and people of color working in the arts at this present moment, there's a high burnout rate that, you know, really it's a mental health crisis. And as well, there's a high dropout rate. People are leaving the industry because quite frankly, they are undercompensated. They are overworked. They feel underappreciated in this work at this moment. And that, of course, that is only indicative of what has come before. This is not new. And as well, trends that continue to be persistent throughout this pandemic period. So with that, in intersection with the very somber reality, which is like, I believe 67% of education has been cut from museums over the course of this pandemic. Those two things for me feel really important to think about when we think about this question of trying to get into the field. Because as new people entering the field right now, which is, of course, for folks who are coming from different backgrounds, can feel like a massive risk to graduate from school and to enter into an industry which feels deeply precarious. But as well, a question of retention. And so for me, 
trying to think through how to encourage people to stay really has become something that I care a lot about. I encourage a lot of the younger folks that I have the absolute pleasure of collaborating with to keep thinking through the ways that they can center their own value set and as well bring their true and whole selves to the work that they do because this industry really needs them. And so with my great hope, it's that people should stick around and as well to continue to advocate and hold space not only for themselves, but also for one another, because with a rising tide, it absolutely is possible, I think, for some of these things that have historically been deeply flawed, troubled, and problematic within the arts to continue to change and transform generatively. And given that kind of history of this difficulty and precarity of positions in the arts, what would you say to somebody who is maybe wavering in their confidence that they want to come into the industry, but they're just not feeling confident enough to kind of stick to their guns? I'm always like the best person to talk to about this, if only because I have questioned my faith in institutions at different points across my career. I think that I have come to a place where I have often had to reflect on why is it that I want to be here? And I was really thrilled and honored to come back into museum work after a hiatus away from museum work. But I left museums and I speak very openly about that because of the fact that I love them so deeply. And so it's important to understand that sometimes that actually the way in which you can truly center and understand your adoration for something and and as well your commitment to it, commitment to changing it, commitment to expanding it, commitment to wrestling with it for the rest of your life is actually sometimes by leaving, right? And so this is where there is a paradox, I suppose, that I, you know, I'm kind of putting forward, which is that we absolutely need to be thinking about the retention of incredible human beings who are committed to doing deep mission work and sort of values-driven work, DEI work within this industry, in this here and now, right? But we also as well need to be deeply aware that sometimes it's okay to take a moment, to step back, to step away, to go to school, to explore something else, to think about the reason why you came here in the first place and what it is about art and artists and art history that you love, because those are the things really that will get you out of bed and doing this work. It's an incredibly tough industry to be in. It's one that can be, you know, quite frankly, very exhausting, uh, you know, because everyone is working so hard. So you really have to know why you're here. I think that for folks who are in that place of wavering and trying to navigate what it means to exist in the here and now, it's okay. It's okay to waver. It's okay to question your faith. And it's okay as well to put a hand out to talk to folks who are mentors, who are friends, who are people you trust to talk about those things openly without any shame. These are systems that have long been troubled and are long overdue for some change and transformation. So I think it's actually a really good thing when people have those moments of feeling anxious or worried or concerned, because what it indicates is that they are seeing things for what they are. For me, that's what I I hope for these next steps in the art world, right? That, That question of what now and what will we do with some of that anxiety and concern Those will be the things that will push us forward and as well will keep those folks who are in that place of wavering continuing to show up because we, as I said, very much need them in this work. Finally, this is the question that I like to ask people because it often kind of yields interesting answers. What is at the forefront of your mind right now? I think I'm thinking deeply about spring and this question of the world reopening and how that will take shape and form. I think, you know, we've learned so much about ourselves and one another and the ways in which art can work in this moment. And too, quite frankly, right, the ways in which art can fail and at points really stumble. 
And so my hope is that, you know, as we're kind of going into the spring, something that continues to be on my mind is that this will be an opportunity to continue to experiment and to learn. And so, you know, I've just been constantly reminding myself that, you know, when we think we've seen it all, we've only just begun. And so going into these next seasons, I'm looking toward how that can shape our creative vision and how that as well can perhaps be instructive of us, how we can learn from this period of time and have those lessons be applied directly into how we are carrying forward the future of art. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Shattering the Glass Ceiling. Be sure to check out the rest of this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Shattering the Glass Ceiling is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein.